This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. In recent decades, Christians have talked a great deal about engaging in the culture wars, a term that refers primarily to the ongoing conflict between biblical and secular worldviews and how those worldviews play out in society. But there are also Christians who advocate giving up on the culture wars, especially as we see the biblical worldview in retreat in the West. And instead, they say we should hunker down. We should just wait for Jesus to return because these are certainly the last days. So which approach is right? That question actually is older than many of us may imagine, as Christians have struggled with our place in culture for a very long time. What does the Bible have to say about it, though, and how should the church approach the culture? That's what we're going to tackle today with Dr. William Edgar. He is professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and author of the book we'll be talking about, Created and Creating a Biblical Theology of Culture. And so great to have you here, Dr. Edgar. Welcome. Thank you, Janet. Nice to be with you. Nice to have you here. This is kind of the perennial question, isn't it? What do we do as Christians about culture? How do we approach that question? Where do we begin? Yeah, well, it is indeed a perennial question, one that was wrestled with um, by Old and New Testament um, authors, and then the early church, of course, wrestled with it um, through the Middle Ages and up to the present. I think the place to begin is by understanding what culture is before we decide what our posture should be we need to know a bit about what it is we're talking about sure right what would you say the best definition of culture would be would it be synonymous with the world or is it just how we live how would you define it right no i don't actually think it is synonymous with the world there is overlap of course sometimes because culture can go bad and sometimes the word world means a conspiracy against God. Uh, Sometimes it can be good, uh, because sometimes the world means uh, God's creation. But just for simplicity's sake, I go back to Genesis 126, and it's sometimes called the cultural mandate. Mm. And I, I believe it has three facets. It's the primary calling of the human race. Um, one is that it is a blessing in God's covenant, so it's tied up intimately with worship. Uh, Second, it's to be fruitful and multiply, um, which means much more than just have children. And third, it's to rule over the creation with what I call a benevolent lordship. Mm. So those three ingredients, I think, can be found not only in the original uh, mandate in Genesis, but throughout the scripture and culminate in in the New Testament. Well, that's really great. So when you look at those three steps, when you talk about the blessing in God's covenant of the cultural mandate, what exactly does that mean in practical terms? Well, it means, first of all, um, the presence of the Lord God. Um, He says several times in the scripture that he is our God and we are his people. And as you know, he's done everything to shower his love on us um, supremely um, because of sin. He's given us his only begotten son, 
who gave his life as a ransom for, for many. So the covenant is a biblical way, it's also a legal way of, of saying the uh, legal bond between God and mankind. Uh, it's a bond that God has initiated and that he keeps by his character and promises, but it's also a bond which requires our response in faith and in obedience. Right. Right. So the other facets of that cultural mandate involve being fruitful and multiplying. And I thought that was interesting that you mentioned that goes beyond childbearing. How so? Well, it, it, it of course, does include populating the earth um, beyond the garden. <clears throat> but um, it also means uh, multiplying our talents, multiplying our um, abilities, our gifts, um, one of the uh, primary meanings of the word culture is actually cultivation. And to be fruitful and multiply requires going throughout the earth and cultivating its, uh, its beauty, its goodness, its potential. Um, and then metaphorically, I think it also means um, the possibility of, of the arts, of creation, creativity, the, um, the whole rich realm of um, of multiplying in the in the best sense of that word so the way i put it is um, actually the word culture is related to uh, uh, the the word for colonization mm. which we usually think of as a negative term but in the bible colonization means to populate a part of the world for the purpose of of eliciting its potential its gifts uh, all the great things that god has hidden in the creation for us to discover. So that's why I think it goes beyond just having children, but it certainly includes having children. Sure, of course. Right. And then the ruling over creation part, this is something that sometimes becomes a little bit controversial. To what extent do we rule over creation? And even in our own day, people will say, is it the job of the Christian to take over the institutions of a culture, to claim it for God's kingdom? How do we come down on that issue? Yeah, um, very good question. Of course, uh, it is possible to rule over the creation in a kind of uh, cruel uh, way that, that doesn't respect God's authority or the norms of creation. And you see that in, in, in tyranny and in dictatorships and in people who uh, pollute the world mindlessly. But it's also possible to rule in a, in a benevolent way, in a, in a way that is uh, what I call gentle lordship. So as we tame the world, as we cultivate the soil, as we raise animals, and um, as we create in the world of the arts, uh, these are all different ways of, of ruling, um, because God created mankind in order, at least in part, to be his vicegerents on the earth and right. to to have authority over over the earth. That's why he made mankind. And so it's true you can do it badly, but that doesn't mean we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. We should we should all we should do it well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So when you see some of these movements in our own days saying we're in the last days, let's all just retreat, the culture is going to pot, there's nothing we can do about it, give up and wait for Jesus to return. How do you see that way of thinking when you look at scripture and and what does the word of god have to say about that particular position hmm. yeah somebody once called it um 
polishing the brass on the Titanic. <laughs> um, well, I think there are a couple of things that are deeply wrong with it. First of all, it's, it's disobedient because we do have God's cultural mandate, and it's not limited to one time frame. Um, second of all, I think it lacks love. It, it, it's a way of saying, well, I don't care about where the world is going. It's going to pot. Uh, why should I be involved? That's actually a, a lack of compassion. There's yeah. so much in the culture that needs help and redeeming and needs our loving attention. And then a third, um, it's an old view that is not very different or more sophisticated from just escapism. Mm. You know, you're defining your piety as... Um, just protecting yourself against all comers. It's the guy who, instead of investing, buried his talent in the ground. So I think on at least those those three uh, bases, it's um, it's a profoundly disturbing point of view. It's, it's understandable when you live in a culture f- with fearful elements, um, and many you know generations have thought these were the last days, and they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Now we might get it right. I'm not saying we don't know, but. You know, in the in the, uh, t- the first millennial change, ninth to tenth century, uh, a lot of people said, "Oh, thousand years, that's the end. We're just going to go and um, become monks." Um, right. Martin Luther honestly thought these were the last days. That um, you know, the Pope was the Antichrist, and um, the Church was corrupt, and um, it was just a few re- reforms. Uh, before the end. Yeah. Well, that was 500 years ago. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, things are bad, for sure. They're, they're much worse in uh, Aleppo than they are in America, but things are bad in America. And uh, this may be, got, you know, Jesus told us that it's going to come as a surprise. That's right. Well, you know what? Hang on just a moment. We're going to go to a break. Dr. William Edgar with us, Created and Creating a Biblical Theology of Culture, his book, and we'll come back right after this. This is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, tell us what Liberty HealthShare is all about. Well, Liberty HealthShare is a network of men, women, and children all across this country who voluntarily share medical bills with one another. And we do so without the advent of any kind of government program or third-party insurance. We're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another what you would normally do with people whenever you had a situation that was unexpected and unaffordable. It'd be your friends and family and community that you would turn to. So we're a group of people sharing each other's medical bills with one another. How does Liberty HealthShare respect your conscience as a Christian? Well, as Christians, we are very much pro-life. And as an organization, we respect that as well. So you can be rest assured that if you are a part of Liberty HealthShare, none of your share amounts are going towards things that would violate your conscience. So we would never contribute or share money in something that would result in the end of an abortion or or go towards an abortifacient drug, that's not who we are at all, because we know that's not who you are at all. Is Liberty HealthShare affordable? Well, a lot of people seem to think so, uh, and that's a big part of uh, what we're about. We feel that it's immoral 
to add expense or to uh, have backdoor pricing on a lot of health care bills. And so with Liberty HealthShare, we've done all that we can do to make the Christian tradition of health care sharing available and affordable to all. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. That's 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today talking about a biblical theology of culture. Should we be in the world and not of it? To what extent should we be in the world? This is an age-old question that we are exploring with Dr. William Edgar, author of Created and Creating. He is professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So we were talking about the last days kind of in line with this idea that if we're in the last days, to what extent should we really be involved in culture because it's almost over? And you rightly pointed out, Dr. Edgar, this has been a common theme. You know, Luther thought it was the last days. Even going back to the apostles, they thought it was basically we were in the last days, and yet they behaved very differently. That's what I find so striking. Those who would say Jesus is about to come back, we ought to just sit here and wait for him. That's polar opposite from what the apostles did. They got out there and preached the gospel. Why the difference in approach, would you say, among people who believe the end is almost here? Yeah, I think um, in the apostles' teaching, the last days or the end times represented the whole era between Christ's two comings, his first coming and the parousia. And so while some of them gave the impression that it, it, it could be right away, uh, they, they knew that um, there was no timetable that we were given. And um, also the mandate that we've been talking about in the New Testament um, is intensified um, in the Great Commission, which is a commandment for us to go and uh, make disciples of, of the nations. And that commandment doesn't stop its effectiveness until Jesus returns. Um, and he, remember, he told us in the uh, Olivet Discourse that uh, the gospel must be uh, preached to the nations, the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom will be preached, and then the end will come. Yes. Well, um, it, we don't know if that means literally every single pocket of the earth will hear the gospel, and uh, we're amazed at how many um, places it's been. But, um, you know, the mandate to go and preach and to make disciples is in full form until Jesus interrupted it with his second coming. Right. And that's why the apostles were so zealous. Uh, they, they believed in God's compassion. They believed in his patience. You know, the, the times um, of his patience are over, and now he calls everyone to repent. There was an urgency there, which I think the church desperately needs to uh, cultivate. Definitely. Well, you look at the high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he says in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, meaning praying to his father, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. What does it mean to not be of the world? I guess this is another question a lot of Christians have wrestled with. What is the line between being salt and light in the culture and being worldly? Yeah, a very, very important um, issue. Well, being of the world in Jesus' sense, and also as John teaches both in his gospel and in his epistles, um, means having your roots, your primary commitments, 
in a system um, that is uh, conspiring against God. Uh, that's why he says, you know, keep yourself from worldliness. Um, and a friend of the world is, is, is not a friend of God. He, they are not, he is not saying um, that you should leave the creation or that you should jump out of this earth and, and live on a cloud or live in a, in a commune or something like that. He's, that's not the world uh, in which Jesus is speaking. The world of which he's speaking in that particular context is um, an, evil, an evil place. And he's saying, God, don't uh, let them be members of that conspiracy, but keep them in the world, my creation, um, so that they can uh, do my work and, and, and pray. And there's a lot of people that need to hear the gospel and other sheep that haven't come in yet and so on. So it's that tension we constantly have to live with. And um, there's no book of rules about, you know, how to do this uh, I mean, of course, there are guidelines, but, um, you know, should I go to a certain movie? Should I go join a political party? Should I um, become an artist or an actor? I mean, those are very important questions of calling, and each person has to ask the question, am I following God's way in this calling, or am I just drawn into some, some self-aggrandizement or some idol that I've always wanted to worship? And those are questions of wisdom as much as of a, of a rule book. That's excellent. Opinion. Oh, no, I think you're totally right about that. So it, here we are in, in a very turbulent time, politically speaking, and I'm not speaking you know, specifically about the, the politics of it all, but kind of the situation of it all where you have some saying, well, as Christians, we really need to be active in politics to try to restore some common sense, morally and socially speaking, to our culture. And other people say these culture wars haven't worked. We have a secular mindset primarily in America now. You're, you're wasting your time. What you really ought to only do is preach the gospel and not also be involved in politics. How do you see Scripture speaking to that issue? Yes, um, I believe there are some flaws in the older culture wars model, which seem to say there's only two sides, the white hats, the black hats, and as long as I can force an issue through politics, you know, maybe education, then I'm going to help the white hats to win, (laughs) and it's a winner-takes-all situation. I think the scriptural model is, of course, there's a battle, of course, there's a raging warfare, but it's not... um, between two easily identifiable sides, um, it's at many different levels. So it's within the family, it's in political structures at, at all kinds of levels, it's in the scientific community, it's in education. And each of us has a responsibility to be Christians in their sphere. Uh, some of us are called to the ministry where they, their main job is to preach the gospel, but most Christians are, are not called directly into the ministry. They're called to be um, business people or scientists or moms and dads. And the, the warfare that needs to be fought there is one of, of being uh, obedient um, in that sphere and hoping to turn things around, maybe in a modest way, but if enough people um, did it, they would, they would, you'd see some change. I think the mistake, maybe, that was made in the, in the late 70s and 80s was to think, okay, we've just got a conservative president. We're going to (laughs) win. And the the trouble is it's a whole lot more complicated than that. The world of politics is not 
just about winning and losing. It's about getting deeply involved um, with uh, the art of, of public policy and, and all of that that, that is um, honorable when it's practiced well. Um, and there's a place for that. But there's a place for the Christian artist. There's a place for the Christian farmer. There's a, you know, we ought to be working in every level of life to, um, to see if there can't be transformation and, and some degree of change, as, as it is, has been done in history. Can be done. It can be done again. Well, you look back to the Reformation 500 years ago, and this was all about the gospel and about the recovery of justification by faith alone. And look at what happened culturally speaking out of that. The recovery of the gospel led to an incredible spread of Christian hospitals and Christian education over time, spreading into Europe, eventually landing in the United States. When you look back at that time period, what do you think that time period could teach us about what we ought to be doing now? Yeah, that's a really good example. Um, I think it can teach us that uh, they got the balance right between a gospel of proclamation, which always has to be at the center, and a gospel of transformation, which is a fruit of the proclamation. So, you know, we mentioned Martin Luther earlier. He he rediscovered the gospel by reading Romans, among other things, that it was a free gift, it wasn't something he had to earn. And um, he said the gates of heaven were open to him. But, but then, as he preached, he also insisted that this gospel affect every area of life. So, in, in almost single-handed ways, he changed the structure of the family. He, he, he converted much of Germany from being a celibate culture to being a family culture. Um, you know, he fo- fostered economic reforms. He wasn't perfect. He didn't do everything right. But I think what I admire about these incredible reformers is that they they saw the relation between the proclamation and the transformation mm-hmm. in ways that can benefit us greatly in our day. That's great. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's interesting in our own day, when we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that there is, you know, people are arguing with one another about is it preaching the gospel or is it being active in the culture? Does it really have to be one or the other? No, I think it, it, it has to be both. If you truncate them, um, you'll, you'll have a, a really one-sided approach. Um, one of my former colleagues used to say, um, you know, it's like the body and the soul. Um, if you're a soul-only Christian, what are you? Well, you're a ghost. <laughs> if you're a body-only Christian, what are you? You're a corpse. So if you're, if you're preaching the gospel in the narrowest way um, by just repeating the words, it's a, it's a, it's a ghost. Um, it's not incarnate. But if, if you've transformed the gospel into pure social action and nothing but that, then you'll end up with a course because it's not a lie. So, yeah, I think to answer your question directly, you don't have to choose. You have to do both in, in a biblically balanced way. Yes, that's well said. I'm going to remember that particular analogy because I think that's fantastic. <laughs> what would you say is our ultimate objective in being culturally engaged? Is it fulfilling the Great Commission merely or more than that? You know, um, in my understanding, it's the glory of God. It's fellowship with God. He's the primary reason we do anything. And, um, of course, the Great Commission is central to our obedience, as are 
social justice and all the things we've mentioned. But if we take away that first covenant relationship, that, you know, we've um, lost the, the deep meaning of, of doing all that. So it's all about reconciliation with God, friendship with God, being new creatures before the Lord, being justified. Yep, that's it. Dr. William Edgar created and creating his book. Thank you so much, Dr. Edgar. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. There has been a lot of talk, as you know, over the last few years on the subject of racism, ranging from legitimate concerns about prejudging others based on their skin color to spurious and often unfounded charges of discrimination against or disliking somebody just because of their race. But what has been largely overlooked is the fact that the premise of Darwinian evolution has been deeply rooted in the worst racist ideology since its inception, and it affects us all even today. How do we think about this issue biblically? That is our subject today with Dr. A. Charles Ware. He is president of Crossroads Bible College and has spearheaded many multicultural ministry conferences, along with serving on the Race Relations Advisory Team for the Hudson Institute, and is co-author with Ken Ham of the book, One Race, One Blood, A Biblical Answer to Racism. And it's so good to welcome you here, Dr. Ware. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Janet. It is a pleasure to be with you today. It's my pleasure to have you here. I think this is such a great book because you make so many good points. And I'm wondering, first of all, what you make in light of the book that you've written here on the issue of race and how it's kind of exploded in the last two years. How do you think this is being handled as an issue right now in our country? Well, you know, Janet, I was... Um, saved in 1968. That was Martin Luther King Jr. been assassinated, Robert Kennedy uh, during that year. And, and we were really at the height of some racial tensions right. and divisions, very deep, very troubling throughout our cities. And so I began to think about that at, at that particular time and uh, wind up going to Bible college. I got saved in March, Bible college in August, mm-hmm. predominantly white school. And um, you know, I began to try to think this thing through biblically, and that's where I am today, you know, what the Bible has to say. And I think that the way we're handling it as a nation, um, we do not have the biblical foundation, which is that people have dignity because they were created in the image of God. Amen. That's regardless of their skin color. That's regardless of their physical or intellectual ability. It Regardless of whether they're in, in or out of the womb, they have dignity because they were created in the image of God. And it should be a more of us and us than a them and us. Good. And I, I find so much of the discussion is a them and us, and one side's got to win and the other side's got to lose, rather than an us and us from what I think a biblical perspective would be. Well, and it's so ironic because we all ultimately came from Adam, and you're arguing in this book here that ultimately we are one race. So how was it that we got divided like this? What role did Darwin play in all of that? 
Well, you know, I, I tell people it actually started before Darwin. It started in Genesis with sin. Yes. <laughs> uh, because I say racism, you know, thinking that you're superior to somebody else is a manifestation of sin. That's why Cain killed his brother Abel. But Darwinianism, what it did was give people a rational reason for believing that there was, in the survival of the fittest and natural selection, that there was one race superior to the others. And I remember being in high school and, and watching the the evolutionary concept, you know, from apes to maybe it was... Um, uh, Aborigines in Australia or, or, or Negroes, and you come on up that ladder, and then you get to whites who were the, the, the supreme race. And um, that gives some rationality that, yeah, they're superior races and they're lower races, and person can jump from that to the dignity of life that some people have more right to life than others. And, and so uh, that thinking gives a logical um, premise, although some people would reject it. But in history, as you say, you've got Hitler. He went to the whole eugenics argument for the superiority of the German race yeah. and thereby, thereby justified the slaughter and, and killing of Jews and, and many others. Horrible. Well, I hadn't recognized that the subtitle of The Origin of Species was The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle yes. for Life. And that was interesting. Somehow that escaped my attention, but that seems quite significant because if that's your starting premise, that there are favored races, then of course that would ultimately bring fruit forth that would divide people. Yes, and, and categorize them, you know. It's just like, so what makes you favorite? Well, what makes you favorite? You're stronger, you're, you're smarter, you're wiser, and, and therefore you've got people thinking that they're superior just simply because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity and gives them a right to devalue others who are weaker and, um, and uh, lower on the pole of significance. Yeah. Well, I know one of the things in the book also that's brought up is that the Jim Crow laws, for example, were really fueled by evolutionary ideas. How was that the case? Well, I mean, there are some things that are written that says that, that blacks didn't even have souls. So oh. Christians didn't even have to preach them a gospel because they were somewhere in between the ape and man. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we passed laws in this country that, you know, that, that took so many blacks to equal one vote. And, of course, there was a law passed that you know, basically we say one drop, one-eighth of sub-Saharan African blood <laughs> makes you an African. And that's where people want to know how come President Barack Obama is considered black. I mean, his mother was white. Well, you know, we set up those type of laws. Uh, and, and by the way, the so-called mixed race person was put down to what we call the lower class, because the white was the superior class. And, and so if there's a mixture of blood, well, you can't be white. I mean, you got to be black or Latino or something. You can't, you can't be white. That's based upon that evolutionary thinking of a superiority of the uh, white race. That's right. Well, now, when you're answering those sorts of issues, biblically speaking, where do you begin? Because as you mentioned in the beginning of Genesis, that's where all our yes. problems began. But when you're talking about racial reconciliation or racism and, and the solution for some of these problems, how do you go about debunking evolutionary theories, impact on race, and how the Bible speaks to the issue? Well, I think you lay out a biblical worldview, and what I tell people, I like to talk about grace relations, not race relations. I love it. Because grace covers everything. Um, you know, I was on a 
talk show once and a white supremacist called in and he wouldn't talk to me. He talked to the host of the show and he said, uh, we know where Adam came from. Adam came from white people. We don't even know where black people came from. So what do your guests have to say about that? So I just responded in Romans 5. The Bible makes it clear that that um, wherefore is by one man, that was Adam, uh, sin entered the world and death through sin, that if only white people came from Adam, only white people are sinners. And um, didn't like that answer, I guess. But, but I tell them, the grace of God tells us we did all come from one, Adam and Eve. And we have a common problem, that is sin. And there is a common answer. His name is Jesus Christ. And when we're saved by the grace of God, we're, conf- we're adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can grow together, and we look forward to a perfect environment when Christ returns and takes us to heaven. Okay. But right now, we fight things like uh, jealousy and pride, and it can be over race and ethnicity. <laughs> it can even be over football teams, sure. for God's sake. <laughs> but but that, that, that thing in us is a manifestation of our fallenness. And the grace of God transforms us and unites us for the glory of God around this word. So I try to talk to Christians and say, let the church be an alternative to the division and despair that we see in the world. That's good. What would you say is the biggest hurdle toward racial reconciliation? To me, the biggest hurdle is history, especially in the U.S., You've got so much, uh, as you were talking about, back from Jim Crow, go beyond that, to segregation, to slavery, so much laws and injustice, and some of that injustice has even been planned out today still, and, and we either get a good grip on our history, and, and again, the grace of God allows me to admit failures and sin without throwing everything away. Right. I mean, as I read the Bible, some of God's great leaders fail. David fell, you know, Solomon fell, Moses fell. But the grace of God restored uh, most of them, and they went on to be an instrument in God's hand. So I don't need a perfect America. What I need is a repentant America realigning herself with true biblical principles. And I think that's the way we've got to attack it. Else we just argue right past one another. We can't even have a conversation. That's it. Because the way I see it, the way you see it, totally different. You call me a name, I call you a name, and we both go our separate ways. Yeah, which doesn't solve anything. Well, we're going to come back to the discussion with Dr. A. Charles Ware, One Race, One Blood, A Biblical Answer to Racism. There's a lot more to discuss. Come back with us on Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Hi, this is Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, and I want to send a big thank you for standing for life to you. Because of listeners like you in 2020, Preborn sponsored over 45,000 free ultrasound sessions to women in need, saved over 31,000 babies, and prayed with over 6,500 women to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. The battle rages on in 2021 at an even greater level. And our goal is to give Planned Parenthood the biggest competition ever. 
Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Dr. A. Charles Ware. He is president of Crossroads Bible College and co-author of One Race, One Blood, A Biblical Answer to Racism, and such an important thing to talk about. We always need to go back to the Word of God to figure out any problem that comes up. And this is a big one. We've had a lot of discussions and a lot of upheaval over the issue of race in the last several years. And, you know, Dr. Ware, one of the things that I have often heard people remark upon is that it seems some people don't want to solve the problem. Um, and, and that would not just be in one camp, but on a lot, in a lot of camps of all races, they say it, just the issue of talking about racism is a way to continually say that America is a bad country or certain people are bad people. What about the endless discussion on race? Why do you think that for some sectors, they just don't seem to want to solve it? It just seems to be a perennial complaint that gives an excuse to kind of upset everybody. This is how many people view it. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for for other people. I mean, obviously, there's pride in our hearts, there's jealousy in our hearts, there's all kinds of things that can make us partisan. Uh, our perceptions could be different, but but what I like to say in this is the church shouldn't wait for the country to unite. Good. The church should begin to unite based upon biblical principles. And I tell people, I don't need everybody. I just need some. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> some <good>. people <laughs> who are willing to take grace relations seriously, and then we begin to model for the watching community what it should look like. Yeah. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples and that you have love one for another. And I'm glad here at Crossroads Bible College, we got predominantly African-American, probably about 51%, but then we've got a growing number of Chin, uh, people from Burma. Uh, they probably make up about Fifteen uh, percent or more, and then we got great number of whites. And I'm trying to teach our students: you are future leaders. Mm-hmm. You need to relate to one another biblically, and make the house of God a safe place 
for the people of God, regardless of their economic background. Don't let the world drive your agenda. Awesome. Let the word do it. Oh, that's awesome. So what steps would you say need to be taken in the church? Where do we begin to really try to heal and bring about racial reconciliation in the body of Christ? I think, first of all, Janet, we need to uh, review our own hearts. You know, just honestly before God, where am I? Some people have been hurt. Um, they've been falsely accused. Some people have been mistreated. I mean, there, there are a number of things that can cause us to harden our hearts. We need to look for the heart of Christ and humility. <laughs> then we need to establish relationships with people across ethnic lines and learn to listen to them. Yeah. Listen to where they were brought up, what their family was like, what their experiences were like. Just get to know them as friends. And, and, and then as we work and grow in the Word of God, then we can have some of those hard discussions. What's your view on Black Lives Matter? What's your view on White Lives Matter? What's your view on Blue Lives Matter? What's your view on All Lives Matter? And, and biblically, see, it's almost like a marriage. People say, well, the reason we can't get together is because we're so different. We mm -hmm. see things different. And I tell them, the most two different people on planet Earth are um, women and men. And God told them to get married. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's so <laughs> true. Get married. And we'll work through these things together. It, it, it's hardening when I see some saints who have built bonds that will not be broken through the news media. They grieve for one Might not understand one another. Grieve for one another. Pray for one another. Pull one another to biblical um, perspectives and encourage one another. And their unity is not destroyed, but only strengthened as these different media reports comes out that are so explosive and, and often so divisive. Well, you think about what the Bible says, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. You have Jew and you have Greek and you have Gentile. And, you know, this is something that I think needs to have more, really more attention in the pulpits, don't you think, to say, regardless of your background, regardless of what you look like or your family or what have you, we have sin in common and we have God's grace <laughs> in common. And so, but I mean, even on the sin question to start by saying we're all sinners. No, we Amen. really are all sinners and we all have stuff to repent of and we all have stuff to forgive each other for. Christ really needs to be central in this discussion, it would seem. No, that's beautiful. The whole book of Ephesians hits this. Jew and Gentile are one, uh, made one through Christ. And chapters 2 and 3 argue that very strongly, and it's prayed for in chapter 3. In Ephesians 4, when it talks about equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, it, it starts off in there that we're to walk worthy of our calling and all lowliness, and, and that's humility and, and, and forgiving one another, forbearing for one another in love, just like you said. So, so the leaders are teaching and equipping the saints um, to do the ministry. That ministry, I believe, has a lot to do with us working together across ethnic ground, ethnic barriers to carry out the work of Christ. So the pulpit is the place where we're given the biblical view. And some pastors said, I don't want to talk about it. You know, it's too disturbing. But then I say, well, what you do is you leave your people to the philosophy of the world. That's true. If you don't give them the word somebody's going to fill that blank in for them. So we need a biblical worldview, and that comes from our pulpits and need to be practiced in the pews. Well, and when you look at what unites us as Christians, that we're all one in Christ Jesus, that can be a model for the world. It seems to me that that would be a really healing thing in many respects, or at least a great witness to the world, that yes, we have differences, but look how Christ unites people. That, I mean, that's something I think that ought to be talked about. You're right. That's your John 13 
by this law, people should know that you're my disciples by your love for one for another. Ephesians 3 said that this was a mystery. Jew and Gentile being one was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament. But now it, it's to be a manifestation of the, of the manifold wisdom of God through the church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I often tell people this is our, our chance to shine. We can't just curse the darkness. We must be salt and light. And so I'm, I'm with you all the way. That's what we strive for here at Crossroads Bible College. That's what I teach and preach on and have workshops on. The people of God, let us come together and not just curse the darkness, but the Bible says, how should First Peter 2, how should we respond when we are falsely accused and they say all manner of evil against us? We're to silence them through our good works. Right, right. So when society is calling us bigots, haters, and all of that, we silence them, not through cursing them, but by demonstrating through our good works that we're different. And, and that's, as you just said it beautifully, the church needs to demonstrate that in our relationships. Well, right. And going back to Darwin and the influence that Darwin has had on our culture and how we think about race, what about addressing that issue with people whenever we hear race cited and you know differences in this and that to say, do you really understand where a lot of this racial division came from, that this is a worldview that has been handed down to us? Yeah, I think you need to deal with the worldview. And I know some of the, like we get in those conversations, oh, well, racism here before Darwin, and it certainly was. But Darwin gave a rationale. Darwin gave a scientific platform, put it together so it made sense. And I would say one of the great applications of that today, even beyond just a race question, would be the abortion issue. Yes. Um, we do not value like we we talk about aborting people up in the last term, mm-hmm. and 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 with all the technology we've got today, and what we know about a child in the womb, that is just totally unbelievable. But we have devalued that life. Mm-hmm. It's not life. It's something. It's it's mass. It's a uh, part of the woman. It, it's not life. You know when does it become life? Well, as Christians, we say it's life because it's created in the image of God at the moment of conception. Right. And, uh, and that gives it value. The naturalistic, Darwinistic view, yeah, well, I guess we don't know when it's life, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that has great applications, not only in the division that we have today and the them and us, and I'm better than you, but I think, to me, abortion cries out loudly. We've got a perverted view of humanity. Oh, absolutely. And when you see the the race, racist and eugenics history of Margaret Sanger, yeah. yeah, the founder of Planned Parenthood and how she deliberately wanted to target minorities for extinction. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. It's and people need to know this that it's not just happening in a vacuum. There's actually an ideology behind it. And I, you know, I really like one of the things you've got a great appendix in the book about misconceptions or mistakes about reconciliation. And one of the things that's in here is believing that race is a scientific fact. And I really like that. That's that's an important thing. We're all from Adam, ultimately, all created by God, all designed in God's image. We're all loved by God, and his grace is extended to all creation. We have much more in common than we do division. That is so true and something to rejoice in. It is. You know, I had a university, Christian university. They wanted me to speak on black history um, 
in a, in a Christian, white Christian university. I told him I won't. I speak on Christian history in a Christian university because Yay. it's God's story. <laughs> that is beautiful. I love that. Well, a great book and so nice to have Dr. A. Charles Ware with us. Dr. Ware, thank you for joining us. It was really a delight to have you. My pleasure. God bless you. God bless you too. Thank you again. And thanks for listening to Janet Mefford today. JanetMefford.com, our website. We'll see you there.